The generative AI boom has swept up all before it. The technology is overhauling the way we work and live and giving superpowers to ordinary individuals to create smart copy and stunning images in fractions of a second. But at whose expense? Our guest this episode, Carla Ortiz, is an artist from Puerto Rico who has drawn from Marvel, HBO, ILM, Universal and more. She's also launched a lawsuit against three large generative AI platforms, alleging mass copyright infringement of her work. She tells us about how she felt when she learned her artistic expression had been allegedly co-opted and what impact it's had on her, both professionally and personally. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker, and for Human Rights Organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. Carla Ortiz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris. It's brilliant to have you here, and I think a really interesting story from the front lines of the AI revolution. Maybe the best place to start for our listeners is to take us back to the first time that you realized your work as an artist had kind of been sucked up into this huge moor of generative AI. Yeah, absolutely. So it all kind of comes back to early April 2022. I was just browsing the internet as one often does. And I ended up in a place called like weird sensational AI art or some name like that. The exact name eludes me. But it was really curious little spot because in there, there was an archive of imagery called Artist Studies. And in those studies, I saw names of so many of my peers in illustration. And I knew for a fact that, you know, I hadn't heard anything about this. You know, the artist community tends to be very chatty. (laughs) We tend to be up to date with what's going on. And so I thought, oh, it's just like a science experiment or something rather interesting. So I reach out to my friends whose names were on those lists and they were kind of shocked. They didn't know what this was. And they were even more shocked that it was AI generated imagery based on them. So we decided to reach out to the people who were running this website, people who were, you know, suspiciously selling merchandise that looked just like their studies, of course. And we reached out to them. We're like, hey, listen, these artists don't want to be a part of this. What's your what's your plan here? And they straight up ghosted us. We never really heard back from them. They never took action. And to this day, you know, that's still up there. This was with a very early model of this stuff called a disco diffusion, by the way. So this was before all the other later models came out, which brings me to August, September of 2022. The future has arrived. It is almost impossible to overstate how far the technology has come in just one year. Leaps and bounds. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, um, it's been quite dramatic. I don't know anyone who hasn't immediately been like, what is this? What is happening here? When the major generative AI models are now out, you have DALI, you have Midjourney, you have Stable Diffusion, and these ones really break into the scene big time. Generative AI is going to 
I think pretty much changed every application that consumers interact with. It is a profound technological change that we're still at the very beginning of. People think we're you know, way into it. It's day 0.1. And so that same kind of curiosity, I'm like, all right, let's find out what this is. Let's research this. And the more I found out about it, the more shocked I became and the more concerned I was. Because particularly with, you know, stable diffusion, you could very easily look into their entire data set, which is called Lion, specifically Lion 5B. 5B stands for 5.8 billion text and image data pairs. And in there, I saw almost the entirety of my portfolio, both commercial and personal I saw the entirety of the works of almost every artist I could imagine. I typed and there they were. Friends, people that I knew for years, colleagues. And, you know, I looked at some of the things that people were generating. And it also, you know, bothered me immensely and disturbed me immensely finding out that people were using artist names. Mm. That was like the secret magic. And so the more I started looking into this, the more I became alarmed. And so I'm a board member of a fantastic association called the Concept Art Association. And I reached out to them. I'm like, I think we got we got something here and we should keep an eye out on this. And the two founders of it uh, immediately agreed. Uh, Rachel Minerding, Nicole Hendricks, wonderful people. And they were like, yeah, let's do a town hall for our community. And through that town hall, I started reaching out to um, machine learning experts, specifically Avishak Gupta of the Montreal AI Ethics Institute. And when I sat down with Abhi, I was like, so we're, we're artists, we're not engineers. Is this wrong? What's going on here? He was shocked. He didn't know that the way these things were trained was so intrusive and extensive. And he immediately jumped on board. He's like, yeah, let's talk about it. And through there, little by little, we started learning more. We started organizing. We started communicating with more and more machine learning experts, uh, humongous, important folks in that field. Like, for example, Dr. Tim McGevrew from the DARE Institute, Mm -hmm. um, Professor Ben Chow from the University of Chicago, and so on. And yeah, we've we've come a long way. We've learned a lot and we're still just as worried as we were back in September, maybe more. <laughs> yeah. And obviously this is hugely important because all a user has to do is go to a tool like Midjourney or Stable Diffusion or any of those that you named, type in, draw me a, a landscape in the style of Carl Ortiz or a portrait in the style of Carl Ortiz and get essentially something that looks a lot like you. Why does that matter so much, given your background? For, for listeners who maybe don't know, how long have you been at this and how hard have you worked to get to where you are? Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of people need to realize what the job of an artist in the entertainment industries looks like. Art is divided in various markets with various needs. So you have the fine artists who showcases in a gallery and they're not nearly as concerned with this because the market needs of the, the fine art world are different. You know, 
there's often a need for something tangible, something traditional, something that you can hold on to. You have people that are generally excited about the tech, you know, that are being able to like make exhibit. So there's a lot more room for a technology in the fine art industry where it won't affect artists or impact artists as much as say the entertainment industry. And that's where folks like, you know, me who are concept artists, uh, illustrators, uh, visual developers, animation. I don't do all of these, but I'm just kind of describing that market. Yeah. Um, that's where they reside in the entertainment industry. And generally the role of an artist, whether it be in film, games, books, anything you name it, board games, is you deliver a lot of different sketches, mm -hmm. like your first visual ideas of what something will look like. And then you take, you know, after a series of back and forth and agreements of what is and what isn't, you move forward to the rendering stage in which then you deliver a final image. That's our entire careers. And to be able to work in the entertainment industries, you do have to meet a technical level in your skill set. You have to have immense knowledge of anatomy, lighting, values, line work, you name it. And this is people training their whole lives for, to be able to do this. I've trained ever since I was a kid, I've been drawing. So, so for people to be able to reach the technical level they need to in order to do these jobs, we're talking like decades here of everyday training, everyday drawing. And all of that, our entire jobs can now be fully outsourced to a program, to a model that in the blink of an eye can make images that look just like yours in your name, using your data, competing in your markets at a, at a price that no artist anywhere in the globe can compete at. That's immense. And when people say, why should people care? Well, we have a myriad of answers for that. Number one, I personally believe if your work is digitized at any capacity, if you use a computer at any capacity, what is happening to artists is kind of like your canary in the coal mine moment. Like whatever job you do, chances are there will be some form of generative AI that will either lessen it or outright remove it. And it's not just me and artists saying this. This is like, we have studies now that estimate this. For example, Goldman Sachs a couple of months ago released a study that estimated about 300 million full-time jobs to potentially be diminished or lost with generative AI. Just to give listeners a sense of what that is, between the United States and Europe, that's about 333 million full-time jobs, give or take. That's about 89.9% of jobs. If those job loss was concentrated between those two countries, 89.9% mm. of jobs diminished or lost. What do you compare AI to in the course of human civilization? You know, I've always thought of AI as the most profound technology humanity is working on, more profound than fire or electricity or anything that we have done in the past. Now, now, to finish up on that note, me personally, I don't think I'm okay with this. I don't think I'm okay with people losing their jobs on 
models that utilize our own data, our own work, even our own names to be able to generate the things that we're seeing. I don't want that future for us, specifically in the creative industries, right? Where it's like the most human of most wonderful activities that I think humanity can engage in. And it's, it's funny because that's the thing that people always dream of, where it's like, oh, once I retire or once I get enough or once I work hard enough in my life, I'm going to spend time playing music. I'm going to mm. spend time writing. I'm going to spend time painting. And the promise of technology is always that we're able to free up our time to be able to engage in those tasks. Mm. So what happens when we automate those tasks? It's an onion. When I think about all the reasons why I'm concerned, why I'm worried, it's it's just so many layers to it. And it's it's really existential. Yeah. At least for me, Chris. And it's not just for you, right? You said it's existential for you, but one of the the issues is you mentioned you are the canary in the coal mine actually we're all feeding these models yeah. if you have yeah. gmail autocomplete it's learning how you type to suggest things in the future as a journalist there's a huge amount of argumentation going on between media outlets and these companies over whether or not they can scrape yeah. the human existence of media across the internet so actually are we all sleepwalking into this in terms of all of our expressions, all of our thoughts, all of our typing, all of our art is essentially becoming data to feed these models? It's, I think it's obscene. I can't think of any other word. What right do these companies have to take all of our contributions, all of the things that we freely shared in the internet for our friends, for prospective jobs, for our family, for our craft, for a myriad of reasons. Like what right do these companies have to say, hey, this is now mine and I'm gonna make billions off of it. And you don't get a cent, you don't even get a say, you don't even get to leave because of how machine learning works, right? Once a model is trained upon certain data, or once a model is trained, period, it can't unlearn, at least not yet. So it can't even forget. And this is a livelihood issue. This is a privacy issue. This is a fairness issue. This even puts into question the usefulness of the open internet. One of the things that you know I have to do for my job is I have to figure out how things work. For example, hmm. I was painting a suit of armor the other day, right? And I wanted to find schematics on suit of armors so that I know, right, how things connect, because that's important. You want to have that level of realism, that, that tangible aspect to something. And when I looked, all I could find were AI-generated imagery that had no understanding of how these things function, that just outright littered the entire Google search. Now you have some artist who, when you search their names, all you see is AI-generated imagery. Hmm. And this goes on, like even just today, 
I saw images of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. And one of the first results is an AI-generated selfie of the person with the tank. Yeah. It's a disturbing, disturbing reality we're living in. Because the internet is wonderful, useful. A lot of these companies, they say, oh, we are democratizing this. So everybody can be creative now. And I find that so offensive. Because nobody, nobody had a say in this. That's not democracy. Nobody said, hey, I want to be a part of this. Or yeah, I'd like to be a part of this new technology. Have my artwork. No, nobody said that. What was the actual democratization of the arts and the democratization of so many things was the open internet. Hmm. The ability to go online and research and find information that is useful, find things that you can learn from. That's how a whole generation of people, artists included, have reached new levels of learning and training. And we're seeing so many incredible artists that are now coming up because they grew up on the internet. And if they had a question on, ooh, how does this particular thing work? Or how does this particular artistic theory work? They had it in seconds. Mm. And that's the real democratization of things, not whatever, whatever this is right now. And so in response to whatever this is, in January, you took a stand. There's finally been a lawsuit filed in the Federal District Court of Northern California. The suit claims that Stable Diffusion is committing copyright infringement on a mind-bogglingly massive scale. Yeah, so back in January, me alongside two other fantastic artists, uh, Kelly McKernan and Sarah Anderson, decided to file a class action lawsuit against generative AI companies, specifically Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, and DeviantArt. And what was the the basis of the suit? What were you alleging about these three companies? Two of them are really significantly big AI image generators, Stable Diffusion and Midjourney. They're probably names that folks recognize, and DeviantArt has kind of long been a, a community for artists, but has started dabbling a little bit in generative AI. Yeah. So the class action lawsuit is um, pretty extensive. It, it's very, very detailed. It covers many, many of the things that you know we're concerned about. Uh, for any of the listeners that are curious about it and want to actually read all the, the court documentation, which right now there's a lot, they can go to a stable diffusion litigation.com. But to answer this briefly and to kind of summarize, some of the major aspects of our suit include copyright infringement, DMCA strike, and right of publicity. And while I'm not, I'm not a legal expert, so I'm not going to even entertain describing the minute details of each of the claims, I will say in essence, basically we're telling these companies that it is not okay to use our works in the way that they've used to train their models, to be able to use our names in the way, our names and reputations in the way that they've used by allowing users to generate imagery that looks like ours. And basically our aim is to set a very clear precedent that these practices are not okay. And while I do think that the laws we already have are plenty and are enough to clearly showcase that this is not okay. 
we're basically going into the courts to prove that, but specifically with these, you know, te new technologies. Mm. And I want to come back to that in a second about whether actually the existing legislation is good enough or if we need to have some sort of new elements of it for AI. Mm -hmm. But it's it's worth pointing out that these companies don't necessarily dispute that they have used mm -hmm. lots of stuff in training data. I know David Holtz, the founder and CEO of Midjourney, has told oh, yeah. I think Forbes magazine in the past that yeah, there isn't really a way to get a hundred million images and know where they're coming from, he said. Oh, yeah. as a kind of way of excusing this. I mean, <laughs> what do you make of that? <laughs> when I ever I hear this excuse, it just sounds like a car thief who's made a car out of multiple parts saying, so sorry, officer, I don't know whose parts this is, <laughs> you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, I can't be bothered to follow the law because it's just too much work, essentially. We touched on the law aspect and how you believe existing laws will already cover you for this and prove that this has been a, a misstep by the organizations involved. But do you want extra cover? Has the last year of generative AI changed what we need to have in terms of our laws to protect artists, to protect people who create any sort of content? Yeah, I mean, there's so many different things that can be done. And so, for example, when you have some of the companies say, oh, it's too difficult to curate the work and curate the data, so we just have to ingest everything, I would counter that and say, no, it's, it's not difficult at all. Whole industries, you know, work because they curate imagery. You know, for example, whenever a film is made, you have whole departments that are dedicated to ensure that every image that is used has the right, you know, credentials that has the rights rights to use it. Um, there's whole industries all over the world that dedicate themselves to collecting, you know, imageries where the rights are fine and where the artists are paid. And we see great examples of this in the music industry as well. You know, you cannot use sample music like that without, you know, giving attribution to the original musician. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I hear, oh, it's too difficult to do this, I always get frustrated because there is nothing stopping these companies from starting with just training the models on public domain works. That's works that belong to all of us. And that's substantial. And then any expansion upon that to be done via, you know, consent, credit, compensation, or with the, you know, and transparency. This is what the artist community is called, the three C's and a T. And that would have been such a better start to this, right? In terms of what potential actions we need, well, we need a lot, but particularly we need a lot from governments. 
we need governments to say, hey, these specific practices of utilizing all data in the internet to just, you know, train your models, to have your models ingest that and train your models, that's not okay. We need to close the research to commercial loophole that has allowed some of these companies to get away with gathering data that they wouldn't have otherwise. For example, and here we got Lion, which is a nonprofit also funded in part by Stable Diffusion or Stability AI, um, gathered all that data under the pretext of research. And under that pretext of research, it was able to, you know, it can gather you know, things that are of commercial nature, copyrighted, you know, all that kind of data that otherwise commercial entities wouldn't. But then it immediately turned commercial when Stability AI and MidJourney decided to use some of those, um, you know, data sets for their own models. So we need to close that. We need to have regulatory agencies really, really take a hard look at these companies and really, really take a hard look at like the practices and ensure that people's copyrighted data, biometric data, private data isn't being abused. Governments need to implement opt-in you know, procedures, not opt-out. The way that these companies are saying, hey, we can solve this if you opt out, that's untenable, that's unsustainable. The base of all this should be opt-in. We shouldn't be forced to be a part of this technology, whether you're an artist or a regular person posting online, you shouldn't be forced to be a part of this technology. You should have a say. And if you have a say, you should be compensated, especially if you're an artist or a writer or anything, you should be compensated. You should be able to earn some sort of, you know, livable wage, in fact, thriving wage, dare I say, um, if you engage in these technologies. Because at the end of the day, they're still tools essentially of replacement. And then I enter into the next section where we desperately need our governments to jump in right now, more labor protections. Mm. We need to be able to protect workers from something like this because otherwise you'll have moments where it's like, hey, you'll work for a company under a specific contract that says, hey, everything that you work for us is ours. Do that for a couple of years. And then there's nothing stopping that company from training a model on your work and now having a digital replica of you forever. So we need a lot. So we've talked a little bit about opting in and opting out. And obviously those behind these tools are saying, well, there are options here. Why is it more nuanced than that? Well, a lot of these companies are saying, hey, 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 there's no need for opt-in. Let's do opt-out. Let's do opt-out. They're, they're pushing opt-out as the solution to these issues. And I find that deeply unreasonable. There, there's various layers to this. But number one, once a model is trained upon data, it can't forget. So any promises of opt-out happen to future models, not to current models. So whatever's out there, GPT, you know, stable diffusion, it, that's that. You cannot opt-out from that. Even, however, for future models, <laughs> it's still unreasonable because opt-out procedures place an undue burden upon people who might not know the language, 
might not know the technology, might not even know their works are in those data sets, might not know that their pictures are in the, might just not even be on the internet for starters. Secondly, like, do you know how many models of visual AI, generative AI alone exist? Mm. Like more and more are coming out every day and they have updates how many times? Three times, twice times a year? Does that mean I have to opt out every single time from each and every single one of those models? Does that mean that I have to now spend hours trying to find which images are, are in those data sets? Because that's how it, it works currently. A great example that just happened, Meta released a form saying, hey, we are looking to train generative AI, and I'm paraphrasing here, we're looking to train generative AI if you don't want your information or your data to be utilized for this by us or third parties, sign this form. And just recently, people around the globe received a rejection letter to that, or not even a rejection letter per se, but to they received a letter that stated, hey, we can't comply with this unless you show us, send us images and how we've used this in our data set. Who can provide that information? And if I'm not mistaken, OpenAI is requesting something similar for Dolly 3 that recently came out. Who has that kind of time? Who has that information? Who has the ability? The other solution that they say is, oh, just put robot.txt in your website. Who knows how to do that? And there are certain researchers out there that have found that some of these great scraping companies don't even abide by that. So it's completely untenable. Even if just a couple of companies abide by it, like, again, you have to follow their schedule. You have to follow their updates. You, And what happens if third party people update stuff that you don't agree to and you don't even know? Like, for example, most of my work that is in the data sets is in the data sets because some folks thought my work was cool and posted it on Pinterest. I had nothing to do with that. Basically, opt-out places an undue burden on people and shifts the entire responsibility on managing this onto people. And it forces everybody to be a part of this technology. And it is inefficient. It's untenable. It's frankly just not a solution. It has to be opt-in. It's the only way. The opt-in, opt-out dichotomy seems to be key to this. As an artist who's been doing this for 10 years, as someone who's made a living off this, would you ever opt into it? No, I wouldn't. I would never opt into something like this. But that's my choice. And other artists might not choose the same. Why? Some artists might want to jump in, but I don't think I should be forced to be a part of it. I don't want to. And why not? What is it about this that is so beyond the pale for you? So what I do, I love. I love every little bit of it. I love sketching ideas. I love putting them into paper. I love making imagery that feels real, that feels tangible, that always makes me so, so happy. And I would never give my images to something that 
would essentially be a digital replica of myself. So what? So that it can compete with me? So that I can do less of what I like? So that I could see different ideas? Why would I want that? That's what I love. That might actually dull me as an artist. That might take away the thing that makes me me. I'm not interested in it. And who knows, maybe in a future, in, you know, when I'm in my older age or, or my last breath and I think it'd be great for me to exist digitally forever and everything is ethical and things are going well and maybe this will serve a different function that I never imagined, then maybe we can have that conversation again. But as it is currently, no, never. And you're not alone in that because a lot of people are starting to stand up against these generative AI companies. In January, you were one of the few to take this to court. We're now seeing Sarah Silverman. Comedian Sarah Silverman is among a group suing Meta and OpenAI over allegedly using AI to develop chatbots. She says, leaked information shows her work was used to train the so-called large language models that drive the software. Lots of other authors in the book world, plenty of other lawsuits coming. What do you think is the future of this? We have many different routes, many different possibilities. In the best of circumstances, the one where everything goes our way, governments get into action. You know, we have laws that protect people's rights, that protects people's data. We have laws that force these companies to be transparent about their data. So I know exactly what's going on in each and every one of these models. We have, you know, laws that protect our names, that protect, you know, our, you know, that you cannot use your name, you cannot use your reputation to generate this. We have labor protections so that companies aren't jumping in like crazy <laughs> to try to replace their workforce with these models. And we have a technology that is forced because of laws and because shifting industry attitudes to be ethical, to be fair, to be moral, to be legal, you know, where all of this starts upon public domain, things that we all own and expand upon that. And we have machine unlearning. So if anybody licenses anything and doesn't want the company to have their work, they can leave. So that when workers, you know, leave companies, companies can't use the data that that worker generated forever. And we have, of course, winning court cases <laughs> that help establish this as a precedent. That would be the good one, the good future. The dystopian future, or the one that worries me very much, is that this goes according to plan, which is go as fast as possible, normalize this as fast as possible, hype the wrong the wrong harms you know that politicians are so focused on oh my god this is terminator now as opposed to the real world harms that these technologies enact um that this practice of just taking works and data throughout the internet without thought without care continues in fact legalized in some places that to me is a very dystopian future that to me is a future where a lot of people suffer, where I don't even know 
how artists who work in the entertainment system, you know, industry survive, especially if these things end up gaining copyright one way or another as they are. So thank goodness that hasn't happened yet. Um, but that's a future where I could see, at least in the arts, only those who come from very wealthy backgrounds can now engage in the arts because they're the only ones who can afford it. Because everyday people who rely on regular art, you know, jobs in the entertainment industry, those are now given to machines. And if you do paint anything, you're just editing the result of a machine for a lower cost. And that's going to make art out of reach for so many people. And some people will say, oh, well, just create something new, right? Do an exciting new style that no one's ever seen before. And that'll last for about a day or two when that exciting popular new style gets, you know, <laughs> ingested into a model and there you go. What are you going to do? That's a future that worries me very much. That's a future where everybody, not just artists, hurts a lot. Yeah. Hmm. We're at a very interesting time in a, a fork in the road. Yeah, we are. Carl Ortiz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Thanks for listening to Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which we'll release every fortnight, and look at the wide variety of ways that these seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stoker-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. If you would like to leave us a star rating or review wherever you're listening, that will be hugely appreciated. It really makes a difference to our show. Thank you and see you next time.